Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Today is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, but you wouldn't know it from our gospel lesson. Advent is a special season of the church year where we look with expectation for the return of Christ. This reading sounds a whole lot more like Christmas. During the season of Advent, we're not actually looking ahead to Christmas. I mean, why would we do that? Christ's first Advent came and went long ago. No, during these four weeks, we weirdos at Calvary St. George's don't sing any Christmas carols, Because we're not so much looking to the past as we are to the future. To the day when, as the creed says, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. With that said, I know that, like our lectionary assemblers, many of us have jumped the gun to Christmas. Some of you have put up trees, others have gone to parties, And I know of at least a few of you who've been listening to Christmas music since since just after Halloween. Even those of us who love Advent and want to keep it unstained by the little drummer boys of the world found ourselves singing that very song at the top of our lungs at the end of our candlelight service. So there are many reasons for our inclination to skip Advent and to get on with Christmas But one of those reasons just might have to do with the little line I read earlier that is Advent's theme. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, I'll be honest, that sounds about as fun as receiving one of those dark Christmas cards from John the Baptist that we heard Reverend Jim talk about last week. You remember, you'd open it up and receive the holiday greeting You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? A very apocalyptic advent to you and yours, John. Okay, so the theme of advent, or a theme of judgment, might be one reason why advent isn't everybody's favorite. But looked at in a more positive light, it's a time that's been set aside to anticipate Christ's undoing of all that is wrong with the world. And that is good news indeed. The only thing is, what about when Christ comes to undo what's wrong with us? We all want this perfect justice that is to come, but what about when perfect justice comes for you and me? And this leads us to today's Gospel reading. For although my fellow Advent enthusiasts are rightly upset by this Christmas intrusion, I'll admit that because it's this text, I'm okay with this abridgment of our ideals. For this reading gives us a clue about how to think about the coming judgment after we've come to realize there's no escaping it. And, hint, hint from the beginning... I think it ultimately shows that you and I are a whole lot more into judgment than Jesus is. So, in Matthew's birth account, we see Jesus' first advent. And we see it from the perspective of Joseph, 
Gospel of Luke gives us Mary's perspective, here we have Joseph's. In the narrative, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, and then tells him about this mysteriously conceived child. The angel tells Joseph what to name him, who he is, and who he will be. We're told that this his soon-to-be-adopted son is Emmanuel, or God with us, that his name means God saves, and that what he will save his people from is their sins. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Christ has come to save us from our sins. The only thing is, I'm not sure that we even know what that means anymore. I mean, when I'm at a devotion group and I see someone told, Jesus died for your sins, I don't see the reactions that I've been trained to expect. I don't see them terribly upset that they've been called a sinner, nor do I see them overflowing with joy because they finally realize that they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. What I mostly see are eyes glazed over. It's as if people don't know what to do with this promise anymore. It's as if they're thinking, what does that even mean? And I'll admit, due to the lifeless, uh, repetitious, and contextless use of the phrase, I often feel the same way too. To help me understand this reaction to the gospel, I've been thinking about the phrase that Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, once made famous. He said, We live in an age where everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. Hear that again. We live in an age where everything is permitted, and nothing is forgiven. I think there's a lot more truth in that little phrase than meets the eye. For you and I might be cool with or down with a whole lot more than our mothers and fathers were. But have you ever noticed that once the line's been crossed, wherever that line might be, there's no coming back. As soon as something happens that's beyond what we're cool with, the result is complete ostracization and condemnation, and there's little or no chance for redemption. I was reminded of Dean Jones's quote earlier this week after having heard that Mel Gibson was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director. I was at my mother's house. My mother always has the TV on. And I noticed that every morning show commentator and TMZ commentator and you name it couldn't help but bash the man for sins he had committed over ten years ago. Now, granted, Mel Gibson committed some real sins. But isn't it disappointing that despite this man's numerous apologies, and from what I've read, subsequent attempts to atone for his sins, there's no coming back for him. The road to redemption has simply been cut off. Forgiveness, no longer an option. Now, I don't know about you, but this newish, everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven landscape 
is scary to me. It's scary because I can't help but think what it would be like for me if I were in his shoes. What if I were to cross the line? It makes me afraid because, as Reverend Jake likes to say, we're all three days away from being tabloid news, and most of us are on day two. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my heart pretty well, and I can deeply resonate with the truth of that sentiment. In other words, I don't think that Mel Gibson and I are all that different. This newish moral landscape became even scarier to me a few months ago when I read about a person most of us once thought heroic being criticized to the point of demonization. If you remember earlier this year, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Leading up to and after her canonization, lots of articles circulated criticizing her character and her practices. One of them was a republication of an article uh, published by or uh, written by the late Christopher Hitchens. The article was called "The Fanatic, Fraudulent Mother Teresa." Having read some of these articles, I suppose there's a lot to criticize. She used subpar medical equipment. She used don donated money for the religious life of the community rather than the physical care of the sick and dying. And many were offended by her conservative views of sex and contraception. These are real criticisms, and I'm sure there could be more. But do we really want to cut her off? Do we really want to eliminate all paths to redemption? Is there no room for forgiveness for even the best of us? I don't know about you, but I find that scary. I mean, I haven't walked into the slums, found unwanted children, and welcomed every single one of them I could find. But she did. And how many of the people writing those articles laid down their keyboards, moved into slum communities, and showed up every single day to love those whom all others had given up on? Having read these articles, it seems that Mother Teresa was a real human being with, sh with shortcomings and problems, just like you, me, Mel Gibson, and the people writing those articles. But what do they wish that she had been? More like them, sitting in front of a computer, writing about the flaws of those too dead to defend themselves? You see, I think that it was in her willingness to take forgiveness seriously that made Mother Teresa worthy to be called a saint. It was her unwillingness to cut off or to believe in this distinction between the deserving and the undeserving that makes her great. To her, the poor, the sick, and the sinner were people to be loved and not ostracized. Sure, she was a crappy doctor and a bad administrator, and there are awards for being good at those things that she will never get. But she actually loved people. 
she actually forgave people. We can rightly criticize how much she spent donated money on communion chalices when they should have been spent on medical care. But all I know is that the poor also won't be fed by ostracizing dead saints on the internet. So it seems to me that you and I have a choice. We can join in on the parade of cynicism and contempt with a congregation of the internet and wind up with no saints because everybody's closet has as many skeletons as trophies. We can be down with everything until it's that thing and then isolate ourselves in our embrace of a forgiveness-free modus operandi. Or we can err on the side of mercy and grace and accept the reality that in God's economy, not everything is permitted, but all is forgiven. No matter which you decide, the truth is that we cynics, when we cynics see Christ come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, we're going to have to deal with the disappointment that he is not as harsh a critic as we are. On the last day, when you and I find the entrance to the pearly gates open wide and full of people we would love to write mean things about, we're going to find that there is no internet. And there are no more lists of who is and who is not a saint. The great disappointment will be that God is not as hard as those shamed on the internet as you are on yourself. So if you want to join the party, the door is open. But if you're more interested in adding names to the shamed list, just remember... Your blog won't last forever. For as the wise John Ames makes clear in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and this I quote, In scripture, the one sufficient reason for the forgiveness of debt is simply the existence of debt. In other words, as Advent comes to a close, take heart. He's coming to save us from our sins. For the whole point of Christ's coming into the world was to save and not condemn. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.